Hello, and welcome to SciPodNet's Science of Sustainability series. I'm your host, Tom Edwick. Today's episode is the second of a special two-part podcast all about the sustainability of our food production systems. In this second episode, we're going to be moving away from the strategies currently employed to create more sustainable foods and look forward to some of the ideas and applications shaping the future of food. Joining me today are two of my Notch colleagues, Maddie Dunn and Maya Fiedler. Thank you both for joining me today, guys. Um, so Maddie, in our last episode, we covered some of the challenges that are facing the food industry when it comes to sustainability. As some context for this episode, I wondered if you could give our listeners kind of a quick reminder of some of these challenges. Yeah, sure. So today our food industry faces so many challenges. We have a growing population, so there is an increased demand for food. With climate change, there are more extreme weather events destroying harvests and migration laws impacting the availability of seasonal workers on farms and in factories. And obviously in recent years, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic, which has seriously affected supply chains. So in terms of sustainability, the challenges aren't just environmental, but they're also social and economic. One main issue facing the future of food is what we're eating. We use a large proportion of the world's land for growing crops to feed livestock rather than humans. And it's been suggested that raising animals for food is inefficient, with livestock consuming large quantities of grain, soybeans, oats and corn, while producing a comparatively small return on meat, dairy and eggs. And according to the BBC, we could eliminate the worst cases of hunger today with about 40 million tonnes of food, and yet 760 million tonnes is fed to animals on farms every year. So there is a real need for climate smart solutions that help support the planet as well as people and profit. Thank you so much for that overview, Maddie. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are aware of these issues and would really kind of like to reduce the impact of the food they eat. But unfortunately, something that often comes up kind of again and again is just the cost. Um, so, Maya, this dilemma with kind of making sustainable food more accessible is something that you've been thinking about. Uh, could you talk us through this issue? Absolutely. Um, I think it is really important to discuss how sustainable food needs to become more accessible um, in light of the living cost crisis. Um, for many, buying the most sustainable option just isn't a priority. Um, it's just not affordable a lot of the times. Um, so I think there needs to be more solutions that will improve food security in a more sustainable manner um, with transparent supply chains in order to make sustainable um, food much more accessible. As someone who's passionate about science communication, uh, I think it also is really important to, um, to be careful when framing who is responsible for adopting sustainable strategies at home. Um, another issue with the rising living cost is that independent food shops and businesses are also suffering. Um, another important thing to remember is that while shopping in bulk can be considered sustainable, it often requires an initial investment, which again, isn't accessible for um, for many people who are having to cut a lot of costs at home due to the living crisis. So in summary, in order to make sustainable food more accessible, we need to normalize sustainable alternatives, um, alleviate poverty, bridge the wealth gap, and um, for those that have the privilege to um, 
to shop sustainable alternatives um, or spread awareness, do use your privilege to do so. Yeah, I think you, you bring up some really like interesting points and it's a really interesting perspective on the issue um, that highlights just how complex the challenge is when it comes to food. You know, what we eat is so tied up in so many other factors, social factors, sort of economic factors. And, you know, beyond this, food often plays a, a dual role of not only providing nutrition, but kind of forming part of our cultural identity as well. Um so Maya, I wondered if you could talk about kind of how we can actually approach the the food sustainability problem in a way that kind of takes all of this into account. So when talking about food in general, we really need to approach this with sensitivity as food is so vital in cultural identity across the globe. Um, as someone with a Chinese Indonesian background, it just makes me cringe when I see influencers act like they've discovered tempeh and tofu or it's rebranded in a way that takes it so far from its original roots. Tempeh and tofu, they are excellent sources of plant-based protein um, and I am glad it's becoming easier to buy but I think it is really important to honour and respect the cultures that have eaten tempeh and tofu for example for centuries so this is just an example that i can personally relate to but i think in general it is really important to try different sustainable alternatives uh without appropriating food of marginalized cultures as this can be really harmful Amazing. Well, thank you both so much uh, for such a great introduction to the issues that we face surrounding food and kind of just the complex nature of food sustainability. Now I wanted to move on to looking at some of the new technologies that are helping to pave the way for a more sustainable food future. So Maddie, you've been doing some research into kind of some of the exciting technological advances that are being made in this area. Could you talk us through these innovations and how they're kind of aiming to solve some of the issues that we've discussed? Yeah, of course. Uh, so we mentioned earlier the need for climate smart solutions that support the planet, people and profit. And one thing that is trying to address these sustainability challenges is new and optimised technologies. There is this idea of using advanced technologies for data analysis and automation in farming, and this is called precision agriculture. Um, there are a few examples of this, such as soil sensors, which allow farmers to precisely measure the nutrient composition of their soil, and this helps to plant crops in the most beneficial way without the need for excessive fertilizers. There's also robotic seeders, which are these ultralight robots that can sow seeds with minimal soil compaction compared to heavy tractors. And that soil compaction, just like if you have houseplants, can cause poor root growth, which reduces water and nutrient uh, intake. I also read about the use of drones that can take high resolution real-time images of farmland and help to monitor crop health flooding extent and weed patches. So in order to tackle the issues facing agriculture, there are a load of startups that are focused on creating these new technological solutions. One of these companies is called Deep Planet. They've created a predictive crop analytic platform that combines machine learning, satellite imagery and agricultural data to predict soil moisture, soil nitrogen and crop yield in order to help farmers make better decisions. There is also a startup called Thor Ice who have developed a cooling technology to kill 
harmful bacteria on meat without using any chemicals or pharmaceuticals. These are all really great steps in the right direction, but I think it's important to remember that developing new technologies alone isn't enough. In order to really future-proof our food system, we also need these technologies to be both accessible and easy to use for our farmers. Awesome. Thank you so much, Maddie. Um, I'll also just apologise to you both for <laughs> the puns that I've slid into this next question. <laughs> um, so um, when it comes to food production, something that often crops up in the discussions around sustainability is the use of genetically modified organisms or GMOs. These have been a subject of a lot of debate and controversy, but also have the potential to provide a lot of benefits. Um, Maddie, you've been doing some digging into GMOs. Why have they been such a controversial topic? Yeah, I noticed that pun there, digging. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, agricultural scientists have been improving crops through biotechnology for decades by crossbreeding crops and transferring genes from one species to another in order to get beneficial traits such as resilience and extreme weather. And even though science has not shown any human health effects of eating these GMOs, they have been the target of consumer boycotts and tough regulations throughout the world. And this has been spurred on by distrust of the big corporations that create the GMOs and the ramifications and unknown consequences of mixing genes from two species. Mm. So another word that's kind of often thrown around in the biotechnology space is CRISPR, um, which is probably something that we've all come across kind of in the news in recent times. And it's uh, a gene editing technology that has applications in a wide range of different areas. Um, and one of these is food production. And, you know, it might be uh, a potential way to avoid some of the issues uh, with GMOs. Um, so, Maddie, I wondered if you could talk us through CRISPR and kind of its potential for making food more sustainable. Yeah, definitely. So these newer gene editing tools such as CRISPR can help achieve the same effects as genetically modifying crops without transferring genes from one organism to another. CRISPR is basically a search and destroy method used by bacteria to defend against invading viruses. And scientists have used this to identify genes responsible for a particular trait and then edit those genes. Gene editing is also cheaper, faster and much more simple than creating GMOs. Because gene editing is relatively easy for those with the proper training and basic lab facilities, it might allow developing nations to grow drought resistant or nutrient fortified crops. So I have a few examples of how CRISPR is already being used. Um, a more resilient variety of banana has been developed that can fight a fungus attacking the global commercial supply. Corn and rice have been edited to produce more grain in tougher climate conditions such as droughts. And scientists are even modifying wheat to produce strains significantly lower in the gluten proteins for those with intolerances. Now, I don't know if we're allowed to plug our other episodes, but we recently talked about coffee on this podcast and the costly challenge of making it decaffeinated and how this can affect taste. But interestingly, a coffee bean variety has actually been edited with CRISPR to be naturally decaffeinated, so you can enjoy it at any time of the day. Incredible. And yeah, just uh, for our listeners, make sure you go and check out that episode because <laughs> it is fantastic. <laughs> so as well as the technologies helping to shape our food future, you've both been looking into how diets are shifting and the ways that we can kind of change our buying and eating habits to be more sustainable. Um, and, you know, one of the, the biggest issues that we face is actually to do with food waste. Uh, so Maya, you looked into this. What did you find? So producing food costs a lot of land, energy and water and globally around 25 to 30 percent is either lost or wasted. Um, food waste alone contributes to 8 to 10 percent of man-made greenhouse gas emissions 
Um, according to the Waste and Resources Action Programme, um, in the UK alone, around 9.5 million tonnes of food waste is created by households and businesses. Um, this creates around 25 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions. And did you know, a large portion of the food that is being wasted in the UK is still edible, around 6.4 million tonnes of it. That so much is wasted that it could feed the entire UK population three meals for 11 weeks. So the UN Sustainable Development Goal 12.3 is to have food waste by 2030. So in order to achieve this, um, I think it is really important that we connect food waste with climate change. Um, it is also really important to hammer home that too much food is currently still being wasted, even when it is edible. Another solution would be to introduce surplus food redistribution networks across retailers, manufacturers, etc. And this can include um, donating surplus food to food banks or having companies team up with other companies um, that will reuse surplus crops or rejects. Um, I think many of you may have heard about wonky veg type initiatives. Um, another potential solution could be better food labeling guidance. Um, there's also a really great uh, initiative by the Waste and Resources Action Program here in the UK, which is called love food hate waste and the aim of this initiative is to raise awareness um, and provide tips and tricks um, to reduce food waste at home as individuals yeah so i mean there are also changes that we can make to our diets to reduce our individual food footprint um but maya beyond everyone simply going vegan which probably isn't you know very achievable you think there's kind of a different approach that would be more accessible. Could you talk us through that? Absolutely. Personally, um, I've tried vegan and vegetarian diets. Um, I'm currently pescatarian, but I still have a lot of meals. Um, and this is something that works best for me. Um, I've personally also noticed that a lot of my friends and family members are reducing their um, meat consumption and I think this is primarily due to them wanting to reduce their CO2 footprint. There's someone called Frank Holleman um, who I follow. He's also known as Fork Ranger and he very much supports the reducitarian approach um, and in, in addition to minimizing food waste, he is also very much into helping people reduce beef consumption. So Fork Ranger has found that by replacing beef with pork or chicken alone, an individual can reduce their CO2 footprint of their diet by 21%. And um, doing so might seem far less daunting than going full on vegan. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Maya. I think um, oftentimes people think that the only solution is to kind of fully commit to going vegan. 
but that can be a really daunting prospect. Um, and, you know, having tried it myself, there's, you know, a lot of prep work that goes into eating healthily while being a vegan. So I think the benefit of approaches like that, that you kind of, you're taking a more holistic view to the, to the problem. And um, yeah, I just think that's, that's a great way of doing things. Um, so Maddie, you've also been looking at ways we can kind of shift our eating habits to be more sustainable. And you found a diet that has kind of been specifically created by researchers to kind of cut our emissions. Could you talk us through it? Yeah, so our population is expected to increase 10 billion by 2050. And as the population increases, we will need to grow and use food more sustainably and efficiently. So in 2019, international researchers proposed the Eat Lancet diet, a meal plan to sustainably feed the estimated 10 billion people who will be around in 2050. The plan called for extensively reduced protein consumption, so reduced meat, fish and eggs. And this meal plan was designed to sustain not just the planet, but also people's health. These researchers believe that feeding the future population while benefiting the planet is possible, but not without transforming eating habits, improving food production and reducing food waste. So they developed the Eat Lancet Commission report, which is a scientific blueprint for a sustainable, healthy future, which they believe could help avoid 11 million adult deaths per year and result in less waste and more efficient food production. Awesome. Well, uh, just to finish up our conversation today, I thought we could look into two quite exciting areas of food production that could have a huge impact if widely adopted. And, you know, these are things that are, you know, probably in the public consciousness right now, and they are lab grown meats and insect proteins. So Maddie, you've been looking into lab grown meats. What did you find? Yes, I think we've gone through so many potential solutions to the challenges facing the future of food, you know, from gene editing to improve crop yield and resilience to using robots, automation and artificial intelligence. But one of the unavoidable truths is that our current and future consumption of animal source proteins is simply unsustainable. That's why researchers are working to design alternatives to animal based foods that taste and can be cooked the same way that are beneficial for the environment and our health. So lab-grown or cultured meat is produced by providing stem cells extracted from the muscle of an animal with a suitable growth medium and nutrients, enabling them to grow and differentiate to form muscle tissue. Creating meat in this way could help to address some of the environmental and ethical issues associated with livestock farming, as well as offer health benefits to consumers. I feel like we've had fake meats for a while with burgers made from mycoprotein or pea protein, but it was only in late 2020 that cultivated meat made its debut on a restaurant menu after Singapore approved it for chicken nuggets. Although as a vegetarian myself, I really don't know how I'd feel about tucking into like a lab grown steak or a pepperoni pizza. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, that's such a large part of, of food is kind of how you actually feel about, you know, actually consuming it. Because obviously no animals have been harmed in the making of that product, but then technically it still is a meat product um definitely yeah yeah and this this kind of goes for the the next thing that we're going to talk about which is um insect protein i don't know if either of you guys have ever actually eaten any insects and, and what you made of it i've never no i've never had any have you had some yeah so i um i once had some crickets and they've they're kind of like there's really small crickets and they like fry them up with a bunch of spices it's actually pretty tasty like if you can get past the fact that you have insects in your mouth, then it's okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I watched something once where there was like a an insect restaurant in New York or something. 
and they make it look nice but yeah I've never tried it myself I'm not sure if scorpions are classed as true insects but I've had deep fried scorpion before and I feel like if anything is deep fried it's edible definitely <laughs> I yeah, agree <laughs> so like what, what does it taste like or is it just spices and oil basically it tasted like fried chicken. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> it is incredible how many foods just end up tasting like chicken. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so Maya, obviously insects have been eaten, you know, around the world for centuries. And there's kind of evidence that this was cuisine enjoyed in Europe by the ancient Greeks and Romans. Um, but, you know, now there's a growing market for insect protein in the US and Europe. And insects have been touted as a way to kind of address protein deficiencies and sustainability problems. Um, so what did you find kind of during your research into insect proteins? Yeah, so I found that the European Food Safety Authority is very much in support of um, insects being used to address food insecurity, as well as reduce the environmental impact food currently has. Something interesting I found is that one kilogram of insect protein only requires two kilograms of feed. Um, and in comparison, nine kilos of feed is required in order to produce one kilogram of traditional beef. A month ago, the European Food Safety Authority has given um, lesser mealworm snacks uh, the thumbs up, and that is the fourth species of insect that is approved um, for human consumption. Um, last year, the yellow mealworm has been approved either whole or as a powder, frozen, dried, um, the migratory locust has also been improved, as well as house crickets, in addition to the lesser mealworms. Um, so I, I do really believe that we'll be seeing more insects in supermarkets, um, pet and livestock feed. Um, and another important thing to remember is that around 2.5 billion people um, are already eating insects regularly. So it probably isn't as unusual as we might think. Awesome. Well, yeah, I think that's a great place to end our conversation. Um, I think it's been a really fascinating look into the future of food. And, you know, one of the things that has been highlighted to me is just kind of the sheer complexity of the problem and how we're really going to have to come at it from all different angles to to tackle it. Um, but I want to extend a huge thanks to both Maddie and Maya for joining me to discuss this important topic and thanks to you as well, our listeners. We really hope that you've enjoyed our two-part special on food and learned something valuable along the way. Be sure to head on over to our Twitter at SciPodNet and let us know if you learned anything new about food production and how it works and also remember to give us a follow if you want to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about new podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>